you are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to PGAP. For this episode, I'll be focusing on a necessary yet contentious factor in post growth land that is, the contribution to which that pivotal life decision whether or not to have children has in the movement toward a future that is less impacted by human activity. Now we all know that consumption patterns and wealth inequity, particularly in the global north, is something that needs to radically change. In addition to this, can we have a degrowth society without a degrowth in a number of Western consumers? Were the birth strikers onto something? What about family planning in the global south? Should we be involved? to address the gaps here, or is this just unhelpful interference? So a forewarning, for this episode, I'll be firmly putting on my cap as Communications Manager for Sustainable Population Australia, who have kindly supported this podcast. So I'm going to return the favour by giving a plug for SPA. They will be screening the fantastic USA-based documentary To Kid or Not To Kid in Melbourne and Perth on the 26th and 27th of February, respectively. The documentary is about one woman's journey, director Maxine Trump, in fact, as she shares her vulnerability in her decision whether or not to have children. This is a film that has been awarded with accolades from abroad. It has been described as thoughtful and insightful from The Scotsman, candid and empathetic from the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times said that it deserves praise for exploring a taboo topic so openly. I have had the privilege to watch the film myself and can definitely second these claims. SPA has partnered with Maxine to run screenings of the film to conclude our Stop It 2 campaign before the documentary is unleashed to the wider world electronically via Amazon Prime. In the words of our national president, Sandra Kank, the aim of the campaign is to normalise the choice of having small or child-free families. She says, as an environmental NGO, we advocate for smaller families as one solution towards reducing pressures on the earth and support those who go down that path. So this will actually be our third go at a Melbourne screening. Uh, We had two goes at it last year. Uh, Both times COVID came along. And of course, in this brave new world, nothing is ever guaranteed, including the old adage, third time lucky. As we broadcast, Melbourne is in another short lockdown over yet another hotel quarantine accident. And we are crossing all fingers and toes that things will turn back to uh, relative normal soon. If everything is safe on the 26th of February and you are anywhere near the Cinema Nova in Carlton, we really recommend you go see this film. I think anyone would get something out of it regardless of their views on population. Links to all the above in the description. I had the wonderful privilege to interview Maxine Trump in this episode to talk more about her journey and insight into the film. A really great chat if I do say so myself. I also interviewed Brisbane-based Tanya Williams, author of A Child-Free Happily Ever After, who by coincidence uh, has released the first edition of Child-Free magazine this month. 
another fantastic, inspiring and industrious individual doing the movement proud. My first interview, however, for tonight's episode is with Florence Blondel, a Ugandan-born journalist and now based in the USA and who has previously worked with Population Matters. I first came across Florence's fantastic work via an article for Earth Overshoot Day. Here was a rare example of a journalist from the Global South who has long documented the dire state of reproductive and family planning services in sub-Saharan Africa and the resulting dire predicaments faced by millions of women and girls, expressed in such an elegant and clear way that cuts through us in the global north. Now, see, here is the problem faced by so many of us who dare to discuss overpopulation. If you take matters into your own hands and go on birth strike, for example, you are duly informed that fertility rates in Western countries are lower than in developing countries, and therefore you are contributing to a lost cause. So then you look at the high fertility in regions such as the Pacific and Sub-Saharan Africa, note the lack of access to family planning and sexual health services, and advocate for that. But then you're informed that you're now blaming the world's poor to distract from their own privileged lifestyles. George Monbiot has written entire articles on this, cue hitting one's head against the wall. <laughs> Something gets lost in this seething mess of Westerners pointing fingers at other Westerners, uh, often through social media. Um, and guess what that lost something is? Actually asking women in developing countries themselves what they think. This not bringing of key stakeholders to the table is a bit of an ongoing problem. For example, in Australia, the largest contribution to population growth is through economic migration, and any discussion around that ends up with fingers being waved on both sides around who's been racist, etc., without bothering to ask the migrants themselves what they think. The literature is scarce, but when invited into the conversation, the nature of the debate is a lot more nuanced than what many might expect or even hope for. I've always done my best to bridge the gap over the years. Um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed a first-generation Indian migrant on his perspective on overdevelopment in Melbourne's Western Growth Corridors, um, and through that got his views on population, which was really interesting. So what can I say? It pays to actually ask and bring to the table. And so Florence Blondell, in our interview, vividly describes the many, many challenges faced by women and girls in the global south, whilst firmly shooting down the myths and assumptions that many of us still hold. So a long episode, but hang in there, it is well worth the ride. Three powerful and inspiring women talk us through a possible world where smaller and even child-free families could not only one day be celebrated as a new norm, but this could be one of the many solutions to a world and environment less burdened by us, and one in which each and every one of us has individual control and agency over. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome back to PGAP, and I'm very excited here to be sitting with Florence Blondell. 
Um, now, Florence, just even reading your email signature, you do so much. You're a journalist, you're a health campaigner, a champion. So tell us a little about yourself and what you're passionate about and um, perhaps, um, you know, a little key, key things where you've lived in the world. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a bit here and there. I'm all over the place. I'm a born and bred Ugandan. And that's where I grew up. I just moved actually to the UK in 2015, recently for my master's. But how did I get there? So anyway, uh, my journey, I started out I, uh, for my undergraduate. I studied communications and a bit of French. I guess that's why I ended up with a French man. <laughs> and then I went into journalism. I did a lot of reporting on reproductive health, including HIV stories, a lot around population and development, poverty-related issues, and then the environmental issues as well, and bring that into connection. And this is what pushed me into applying for a master's at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So I looked at the courses and Pope Dev, that is Population Development, just stood out because the course described my exact work that I was already doing as a journalist. While in the UK, I joined Population Matters. It's a UK-based charity working globally to address population size and environmental sustainability and promoting positive solutions to empower women, especially, and young girls. And for me, this resonated. I felt like it was the right fit. I was in the right place. Yes, and I also love digital storytelling, which I've used a lot in my work. Fantastic. Um, you definitely haven't been idle. <laughs> you've, been a, you've, you've lived in many places of the world as well. Um, now, look, I first came across you uh, through your work with Population Matters. Now, Population Matters are seen as kind of the holy grail of the population organisations in the world and was particularly impressed uh, by the article you wrote um, with them for Earth Overshoot Day, which was called Florence Blondell Population Voice. Um, do you want to share a little bit about your experiences and some highlights as a journalist uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in, in Uganda, and also as an intern at Population Matters? Yeah, uh, actually, I wrote that article for Global Footprint Network, and then Population Matters picked it up as have of, of other organisations. But but yes, obviously, they are my my organisation forever and ever. And well, with journalism, my experience, uh, like I've said, I did a lot of stories around reproductive health, uh, the environment, population, and development, and I loved every part of it. But when you cover health issues, especially reproductive health issues in that country, you've, it's a field full of sad, hopeless stories. And sometimes I broke down in the field, like I would be with a cameraman and it would just give me a moment to just cry and wail. Because you see a lot of hopeless women, young girls, hopeless children. You see there is no future, you know. And this, this is why really I was interested, you know, tell the stories of these underprivileged in society. And there are so many, that's the sad part of it. And they're all, most of them are in rural areas, but even in the urban. But remember, Uganda is a country which is almost up to 80% rural. 
course, now we are beginning to urbanize, but even those who come to the urban areas, some of them are putting up slums and it's just getting even worse than in the rural areas. So we have weak health systems who've been trying to you know, come up and improve, but we've not yet hit the target for the health budget. So you go around the country and there's a lot of hopelessness. You just find people, reproductive health is just so horrible. You find a lot of issues with obstetric fistula, fistula and we all know mostly young girls who get it when they start giving childbirth so early. You go to a section and you see, oh my God, we've lost this ma- this many women in this month. We've had these many babies. We've had this, you know, like the system overflow. Like there's a lot that's going on that's so wrong that's just frustrated me. But of course, I kept covering all those stories. I did a series on nodding syndrome. Nodding syndrome, I don't know, it's a forgotten thing, but I looked at the reproductive rights of these children who are suffering with nodding syndrome. They have been forgotten. The girls are being raped, they are becoming mothers, they don't even understand. Already they have a disease which is not understandable by even scientists. And then they're being taken advantage of. There is no dignity. So, But anyway, I told their stories and now I was leaving it up to the public as well as the policymakers to really intervene. We are a long way from that. We are starting to make a little bit of progress, but yeah, it still saddens me that what I left in journalism when I started in 2010 is still happening up to this moment. And then, so, oh, well, with population matters, like I said, yeah. Uh, I first started out actually as an intern for them, communications and campaigns. And later I worked officially with them as a project and campaigns officer. And what I liked about them is the fact that they look at women's rights, women's issues as well as environmental issues. And they see that interconnection, you know, of what even what the effect population has on the environment. And the fact that even, you know, to solve these issues, we just have to empower women through ethical, ethical means, you know, voluntary ethical means. And this is working out and they have projects, you know, in both the high income countries and the low income countries for the grassroots organizations whereby through our project Empower to Plan, and these organizations receive the money that we crowdfund and collect for them or the grants that now we've started giving them. I'm talking like I'm still there. I've left the organization (laughs) since COVID struck and I decided to move out here to the US. But yes, you see, it's amazing. And they get the money directly. They go and reach the young girls and the women and do family planning programs. So yeah, that's why I've been with Population Matters as well as my journalism career. During your time in which you were a journalist, uh, you know, covering the the stories on the ground in um, Uganda, is that when you first started thinking about um, population sustainability as an issue or was there like a light bulb moment um, before then? Um, And how how was your passion for uh, particularly reproductive health and population sustainability kind of developed over time. I must say I've always lived with that light bulb moment from childhood. I mean, of course, it was more pronounced when I joined, you know, journalism. 
But then I grew up, you know, in a mostly a siblings family as well. That's when it was also pronoun- more pronounced. I, I grew up in mostly a siblings family. We were orphaned when we are still so young and we were siblings and there were lots of us. I come from a big family and when I was about 18, 19, I think, that's every man for themselves, every woman for themselves. And then you have to take care of your little siblings. So... So joining journalism and travel, traveling across the country, finally, everything was just glaring. The light bulb was just getting, you know, much lighter. Like I was seeing women were just shackled to childbearing and child rearing. And, you know, that was it. That was all that I was seeing everywhere. That was what was going on. And I could see how they were living in deplorable situations. I'm like, no one should be living like this, you know. So for me, that was it. And I, I realized, wow, there is a problem. And I started you know, researching and looking at the demographic health surveys that we've done in the country since the 1980s, whereby you, know, you see women having on average seven children. And that fertility level was just, it has just come down now to like 5.4 on average. A woman has 5.4 children in Uganda in her reproductive life. But trust me, there are so many inequities and inequalities and you go, there are so many contrasts. You go to different parts of the country, having seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Well, my mom had 10. My grandfather on my father's side had, what, 45 children. So yeah, there is that. It's all we are doing. I've seen a lot of polygamy, and women competing to have children for the men. I've seen it all. So I felt like this is something that needs highlighting. And that's why I did a lot of reporting around such issues and looking at what are the effects, what are the impacts of having these large, large families in a country whereby systems, institutions are still too weak to take care of the people. So yeah, and by the way, there is a moment, I think I interviewed a woman who said the only way out of childbirth for her was to stop having sex with the partner because every time she had sex, it was a child, you know? And that was, you know, she had to agree with him and say, okay, please go to the younger wife. All of this can bring about even domestic violence. What if the man doesn't want to stop even sleeping with you? So you can imagine. And another had about, what, 14 children and she she admitted to like, well, I've had like three unsafe abortions in the past because she was turned off by the contraceptive side effects, by the way, which is also a huge issue now. People have started using contraceptives, but then they get side effects and they don't know any better, then they quit. So like, okay, what's my way out? The partner doesn't want to use a condom, even if they have already this number of children. So you see, I've listened to all these stories and I found it frustrating. Wow, it's it's just, uh, yeah, when people are truly aware of what's going on, it's just horror story after horror story of um, what should be a beautiful thing, having families and um, relating with each other um, just turns out to be such a hellish experience for yeah, so many people. In the six months that I spent in Western Kenya, I had um, conversations with a few men uh, sharing you know my, my my own passions about being child free and in those conversations um mm-hmm. uh coming home uh, how having children how having large families is and is perceived as a god-given right and um you know and a sign of 
um, manhood and, and, and indeed that, um, you know, <laughs> my, my views were see, seen as quite un, unfortunate. And, and, mm. and of course, you, you, you know, <laughs> you know, many people are aware that population growth throughout the African continent is climbing rapidly. So I feel very few in the global north have a grasp of the many factors that actually entrench high fertility rate and the impacts this has on women, children, the community, as you've just shared. Mm. Um, you, you know, to summarise, what's the reality of high population growth in Eastern Africa and what's really going on? And if there was a take-home message for people in the global north, what would that be? Yeah, I don't really think they have an idea. And you, you, how do you go and tell an African man that you want to be child-free? <laughs> what were you even thinking? Say, Are you a man? No way. I was, I was very young <laughs> at the time. I was 22. So. <laughs> so I get their reaction. And that's the thing. You know, we grew up in societies, we grow up in societies which see men having children as, you know, status, a great status in society. So the more you have, the more you wash it, the more you told you're a man, they forget the woman who's behind these children, by the way. You know that. So it's the man. They pat him on the back. They forget. So there is that society. And of course, a man gets you, you're expected to become pregnant. Some men find out that even their partners have started using contraceptives and they pull them out. One time I was covering a story in northern Uganda and the health workers said, do you know how many women, how many men bring their women here? Well, the kind ones anyway, who don't pull them out from their homes. They tell us, take them out. Take out those implants. Take out that. You know, so there is that, that male dominance, that patriarchy, that is a problem, partner, partner resistance. So obviously what you do as a woman, they never leave the homes. They just keep giving birth, obviously. And then of course there is a preference for the male child. That is a huge disease everywhere in Kenya, be it in Uganda. I remember I was interviewing someone in, in Lagos from the Population Council. We had World Day events there and she said, wow, the male preference, mm-mm-mm. That's real horror. You have a girl, another girl, either the man is going to kick you out or you better give birth to a, a boy. And sadly, there's even, it's so annoying, there's a friend, she's in the UK, uh, she's married to Ignean man, and you know what she told me, like Florence, that thing of male preference is not going to go away. Because right now, I have four girls, but what do you think? Because I've been looking for a boy. So, and she realizes that, wow, I'm in a low fertility country and, you know, we wanted to have a few, but then she has girls. And recently, sadly, she just even had what? A stillbirth. Because now she's a lady, now she's over 40. But you can imagine still searching for a male child. And then, of course, yes, lack of information. Although in Uganda, actually, most people know about contraceptives, but of course, the, not the deep information. Sexuality education is still so low. So by the time you grow up by young girls, you don't have this information. You just hear from here and there. But then again, there is not having the information or even when you have the information, but then you don't have the access to the contraceptives as well because you need the contraceptives. And when I talk about contraceptives, I'm talking about modern contraceptive methods because traditional methods, I'm not a proponent, but of course the Catholic Church advocates for those. But hello, when you have a drunkard and you expect them to to go through the traditional method, yeah, that's going to be another baby. Or violence, actually, most especially. And it's always against the women. You know, those are some of the reasons. Social and cultural barriers, actually. And in some areas, you may find even if the contraceptive is there, the social and cultural barriers are going to 
limit the woman. So that's how we end up, you know, just getting pregnant. And of course, there's the religion. Produce, multiply, fill the world as if the world is not already really filled up to capacity. I remember being traveling with a Catholic priest in Western Kenya and uh, we were over a hill looking at the Kaga Mega Forest and it was uh, almost disappearing before our eyes. And um, I did mention, oh, look, <laughs> do, do you think that encouraging family planning is uh, a possible solution to that? And his response was um, having as many children was a God-given right. So mm -hmm. from my observations of religion being so important and uh, in in Kenya that if it's um, having many children is supported by religion that would just be such a hard one to try and address and crack <laughs> like where do you start and they never take care of these children you know they tell you give birth give birth but then you're in poverty you you have a problem you're sick no one comes to your aid so it's mm. just sad in a previous episode of PGAP, I interviewed staff from um, Chase Africa who are assisting with family planning services for rural communities in Kenya. Um, mm. I know that a lot of family planning organisations share, they sometimes face criticism for being involved in family planning and reproductive health for people in the global south. Um, in the global north, we're seeing the situation where successive governments are increasingly hostile to family planning and reproductive health foreign aid. At the same time, many on the political left shut down any talk on population sustainability with terms such as eco-fascism, eugenics, blaming poor people in developing countries for consumption and wealth inequality from the West, etc. Um, not that any of the last thing doesn't exist, of course it does, but are we seeing a phenomena where well-intended people on the left are getting in the way of the progress that needs to be done due to the blind spots in their ideologies? I must say, I wish they wouldn't do that. They're really getting in the way, you know, and you have mentioned Chess, I think when I was at Population Matters, we did a lot of collaborations with them and they partnered with one organization, Dandelion in Africa, which was supported through our Empowered Plan program. And the founder window, as I said, was blunt enough in saying, you know, I, if the government is not giving us the service, it's not reaching us in the very hard to reach areas because she works in the remotest of areas, then how can we not appreciate a little extra help from development NGOs, you know? So I don't get why people in high-income countries are hell-bent on not talking about population growth, high fertility rate in our countries, you know? It, I, it just baffles me because for us, it's affecting the girl child, especially the young girl who just grows up. The minute you're out of your mother's stomach and you have a vagina, your destiny is this and this and that. So I just I just don't like that, honestly. And there's actually there's a woman I met in Karamoja. She told me, uh, Madam, before I was even what before I'd started Menak, that is you no know, the first period. My parents just took me to a man's household, and they made me wait for my period to come so that I was a woman and I started my womanly duties. You know. This is what's happening out there to us. And the minute you start childbearing, when you're a young girl, you push into child marriages, how many children do you think you're going to have? I measured a woman who had 14. How many do you think, how old was she think, think when she started? 
you start young and all you know to do is give birth, especially if you don't have the means, you have a partner who says, I don't use contraceptives, it's going to be child after child. And the cost is death for most of these young girls and women, because we have a high maternal mortality rate, which could be prevented through the use of family planning methods, modern family planning methods. And you know, women always choose these. You know, you combine a bit of that with education, young girls and women are going to choose that. You know. What's even weird is that even the non-educated women, if you tell them about the contraceptives, you give them the right information, you tell them this and this, you empower them, you tell them there's an opportunity to do small businesses, they're also always going to choose to have smaller families. And they will choose, and you better make sure the contraceptive is there. But then again, they wish for it, it's not there. Or it's there, and there are many factors holding them back, including the Puritans out here who are saying, uh, don't talk about family planning, don't talk about her guys. It's happening in your own countries. Why can't it happen in our countries? You know, Are you just giving birth after birth? Most of the developed world, I think, now is at below replacement level, 2.1 children per woman. Why not us? Exactly. People in the left in the global north, they say, oh, we need to have the same development and um, um, rights to material consumption in the global south as a global north but with that needs to come the same rights and access to family planning and reproductive health services and um, choice of, of of family size <laughs> you know i personally see that as in, in, inseparable so um if the political left in the global north have a tendency to be focused on wealth inequality and consumption patterns in the, the west um, to, to an extent where they consider any talk on population to be in front of this how do we convince that this is a false dichotomy like that it is actually possible to have a population issue and a consumption issue and an inequity issue and those issues don't actually have to be mutually exclusive or cancel each other out yeah I, and that's what it should be why should they cancel each other out you know it's a fact capita consumption out here in the developed world is so high for example here in the us i think uh what if if everyone in the world were to use the same resources as the u.s people are using i think we need about five earth by 2050 that's from global footprint network if i got that right so you you can imagine consumption is a huge huge problem but of course if you have more people of course they're going to consume more and more and more and of course as back there if in sub-saharan africa i'm talking about or uganda in particular what do we do the more of us there we are invading the forests you know, we've lost, actually we've destroyed our environment by about 40% is attributed to population growth alone. You know, our national environment management did a report, a research in 2015, which found that environmental degradation is attributed by up to 40% to population growth. That's a huge problem. Of course, capital consumption is fairly low in Africa, but still even the more of us there are, the more nature suffers, the more everything else suffers, the more, you know, we can't access quality education. You know, our schooling system, like people just go to school for like up to what, six, seven years? It should be more than that. The government can't afford to educate a big population. The government can't afford to give us proper health care. And you find that even we have health clinics, which you go in and you feel like, wow, I'm gonna catch a disease from here. 
But remember, there are lots of efforts to combat this poverty, even in our low-income countries, the least, and most of them are in sub-Saharan Africa, including Ghana. There are efforts to combat this poverty. And one day, hopefully, we'll all get out of poverty. But what does it mean when you get out of poverty? Look at countries like China. It won't be long in increasing our per capita consumption, you know? And there are more of them that become rich and they are consuming more and more, competing with you guys. Now, the disadvantage we have is that this getting out of poverty, if we are to become rich, it's going to find us what we are already many, you know? So what do you think that means? A family of, like I've told you, mine, seven children from my mother and father, but of course there are more children, about what, 10 and more, you find us, we are all going to consume. We are going to have the same problem as you guys are having out here, just screaming about consumption, consumption. They all go hand in hand. We have to handle all of them together. Moreover, now look at a country like Uganda. We have, you know, livestock potential for farming. It's yet to be realized in most of our countries and in Uganda, certainly. So that's a looming threat as well, by the way, for methane emissions, because, well, when we start to realize our full potential, guess what's going to happen? And of course we should, you know, it's, it, it's a human right not to leave anyone in poverty or let people explore whatever they have to explore. So we can't just talk about consumption and leave out the people who are behind the consumption. And even these guys who are always arguing, ah, it's only the richest 1%, the richest 1%. Who are they producing goods for? People. So I don't know, I saw a report recently where they're saying uh, 70%, but then they realize that 90% is to consumers, to other people, even from these rich people. So you see, you can't escape this. The more of us there are, the more resources we are going to be using. We need to talk about it all. Florence, you don't know how much I am in utter furious agreement with absolutely everything you're saying. I wish uh, more people would listen to you. Well, <laughs> if you're in high-income countries, like I, I, I worked with population matters, but like I've said, back home, like in sub-Saharan Africa, we know we have a problem. We know population is an issue. We have all reports which are pointing like all the problems. We have a growing population which we need to handle. We need to reduce fertility. We know that. But for some reason, I don't think... People in high-income countries know the problems that we have and the fact that all these problems are affecting young girls and women. Because when you talk about population growth, for me, it means just one thing. Girls and women giving birth to fulfill, you know, whatever population growth you want for us to have. So I don't know what, why they end up calling people because I was in Population Matters in the UK and were invited to the Green Party event and trust me, people were just attacking us, saying, ah, uh, people were talking about population. Mm -mm. That is racist. That's eugenic. That is why even talking about it during this COVID time. Do you want people to die? Hello? We don't want anyone to die. We are just saying uh, we can do something about you know, the future, what's happening to reduce the fertility, especially in high fertility countries, where people actually have expressed the need to reduce their fertility. So if we are giving them empowering solutions, why do you have a problem with that? And you are in countries which have already realized this. You are the self-actualization and your countries are taking care of you. We are so far from reaching that extent where the government cares really for her people and the people hold the government accountable. The people are like, wow, we have a great institution. You guys out here, you have great institutions. You call up the government. People demand we do not demand. We are at the mercy of the governments. 
And there is lots of us, uh, the mostly of the governments. Most of our governments are highly corrupt, you know. People talk of corruption in countries like Italy. Trust me, you've not seen corruption in my country, you know. So we are still way down there. And I don't get it when people are just obsessed with, oh, it's racist, it's this and that, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what's happening out there? Do your research and find out, you know, what is happening? Why do they need this? You know, over 217 million women now globally, especially in low-income countries, they have an unmet need for family planning. Why? They have that. And in most of our countries, even the governments are like, wow, we want even this de the demand for contraceptives to increase because they see the need. They see the systems are suffering and we have weak health systems. So if you're just going to say that, okay, yeah, a woman just, you know, pregnancy, it's what you came on us to do, your uterus. You know, we are just being used for our uterus. The uteri, uteruses. So you just keep popping babies one after the other, one after the other. That's what's happening. And if someone comes out and says they're going to help me get an education, get a contraceptive, get the information, get out of poverty, all empowering solutions in the end whereby I'm going to say, wow, well, I'm going to choose to have a small family because I need time to study. I need time to educate my siblings. I need time to get a good job. I need time, you know? So... I don't get it. It's total bull, period. Thank you. <laughs> now, there have been some really positive life-affirming and life-saving outcomes when communities work practically with organisations to achieve positive family planning and reproductive health outcomes. I suppose perhaps a mental block for people in the global north may be organizations coming in to help communities as, as as seeing more i know imperialism or colonialism whatever so from your experience what is the best way for organizations from the global north to work with communities um mm -hmm. in, in uganda to achieve the best outcomes and avoiding repeating mistakes from the past i imagine that nurturing a grassroots environment of mutual aid and cooperation uh, is, is a good starting point, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. And you know, the population movements, uh, I, I, sometimes I don't blame people who just go off, you know, because we've had a bad history, especially in countries like China, where they coerce women, you know, oh, just have one child. Like, who are you? It's the woman who has to make the, her own decision. You know, it has to come from her heart. And you know, even before they started even coercing women to, into just that one-child policy, their fertility had even started already falling in China. So they didn't even need that because women always choose. This happened in Kerala, in India, in countries like Costa Rica. Like, even without a lot of income, women were always choosing to have smaller families. And they were giving them education, you know, all of that, even without a lot of economic development. So anyway, back to your question. Organizations need to do their research. They need to understand what's happening on the ground. Like a country like Uganda, we have so many reports. You just look at it and you see, okay, this is how high their fertility is. This is the problem. This is what the people are saying. This is what the communities are saying. And you, you just go with that, you work with the flow, you, you can either work with the government or you partner with local organizations which are out there. And this is what Population Matters had started doing actually, has been doing actually for the past two, three years. So reaching out to these organizations, seeing their need, they tell you this is what we need, you know, and you work with them on that. 
without, of course, forcing yourself on them and feeling like they're being compelled and pressured into doing something. But these are things that we need, and that's the only way we are going to cooperate together. Just find out what are our needs. Are we ready to receive your help? Do we need it? And trust me, we need it because, like I said, and the lady in Kenya said, the governments do not reach all of us, and there are so many remote areas in our countries. Trust me, there was a time uh, I was doing a story, and I practically, well, with my driver and cameraman, we practically saved a woman from dying. Oh, I was with a camera woman. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> with a fellow journalist. We pressed her open. She she was bleeding, and that's one of the leading causes of you know maternal mortality. And we had to get her from one village where we were filing our stories. Thank God we had just even covered up for the evening. And we took her to the hospital. I wish I'd followed up to find out if she even survived. But those are things that are killing us. So yeah, find out those gaps. We have gaps, and we need help. Now this podcast tries to unpack the broader issue of post-growth for example, breaking away from the mindset of endless GDP growth at all costs uh, with the incredible environmental and social ramifications that that brings. Uh, An incredibly (laughs) open-ended question, but what other changes for the better um, other than, um, you know, population sustainability would you like to see in Uganda uh, or or in Africa more broadly? Well, the truth is that I just want us to have stronger health systems. I want us to have leaders who give a damn about the people, less, no corruption, why even less, no corruption at all, you know. I want young girls and women to have agency. We really do not have that. We don't. There's just a few who are really just rebelling against society and saying, Mm-mm, something needs to happen. We need, Goodness, I would. I really wish I would see some cultures totally erased. We have some bad cultures which are maintained just because, well, it's culture. Our ancestors, our ancestors, hello, we can become our own ancestors. Like every, every generation can come up with their own rules and culture is supposed to be dynamic, but that's something that's not happening out there. And most importantly, I would love to see most Africans or Ugandans in particular getting a decent quality education higher than secondary school, because most of our people just drop out in primary. And of course, well, primary, we have UPE, which is universal primary education, which is supposed to be free. And of course, the quality, another thing, children are studying under trees. Uh, When it rains, they don't come to school. And the teachers are understanding. They're like, yeah, it did rain. They won't come. So that's understandable. You know, those things, well, well, I've been in Britain and it rains every freaking day and people are just walking about in the rain comfortably and accessing still, you know. So I would love to see all of that happening in my country and Africa in general. So, yeah, a lot of social and economic development is still needed. That is a fact. Well, thank you so much, Florence. Unfortunately, we've come to the end. I'd love to talk to you for hours. I mean, your your passion, your drive and your determination has really come through and I felt, I've just felt so moved by it. Um, I'm sure that anyone listening would as well. Um, so look, if people would like to find out more about you and the work that you do, um, where can they go? Well, like I said, I've just moved out here to the US following the husband, dutiful wife. (laughs) When did I become this person? But anyway, (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, right now, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm reestablishing myself, but so still passionate about the environmental movement and population movement. And at the moment, I'm blessed to be on the advisory board for Population Media Council, which is an amazing organization doing a lot really in behavior change throughout the African continent as well as in the developed countries. Yes, so you can find me, I'm always on Twitter, uh, florenceblondel.com. Yeah, need to do something out there. And I'm trying to do like a program, uh, Flow Ready, Flow Ready, Flow for F-L-O-W, meaning period ready, because it's a huge problem we have back home. It's a huge problem I had while growing up as a girl, menstruation matters. And I see most girls still going through the same thing. So I want to do something about young girls before they start bleeding i would love them to have all the information they need to have at the tip of their hands and get into it and not just saying that oh the time i struggle and gamble through the period and then alongside comes the problem of okay if you get a period now you're a woman we are going to marry you off i want them to say no to all of that especially in rural rural uganda including my own district mayuki which really has it worse especially when it comes to child marriages uh last last question yeah, um, if pe- if people would like to support organisations that focus on population sustainability, mm. reproductive autonomy, family planning and empowerment and education of women and girls, um, who do you recommend? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, let me see. I'll vouch for Population Matters, by the way, uh, and especially now that it's doing its work in not just high-income countries, but in low-income countries and giving the money directly to the organizations. Because recently we just supported like two organizations which I, I found in rural, in urban slums in Kenya, Kibra, one of the largest in Africa, and Korogocho. And they got their money directly and they did their work. I would love to support supporting such grassroots organizations. So Population Matters, uh, of course, Population Media Council, I'm already on the board, and they do great work even in my own country, Ending Child Marriages, Name It Health. Uh, which other organization? Of course, UNFPA does a lot of work globally, so please keep giving it money. UNICEF, they reach the country. I did a series of stories, actually, when I was working as a journalist in Uganda with UNICEF, Uganda, and... It was amazing just going all over the country, covering people's stories, child marriages, and seeing the end to it. So even these big organizations, I know they are big, but they still need the money to keep flowing because they reach practically everywhere. Yeah. Marriage stops, they're amazing. Because most women that I was interviewing when I was in Uganda, like, oh, I've heard about population. Through these people of marriage stop, they come with their big truck, you know, <laughs> they have a mobile clinic, a mobile van, and like, yeah, it stands there. And, you know, they give us information, and sometimes they give us, you know, this and that. So, yeah, you just research. Whatever you feel good with, go with it. Thank you, Florence, so much for your time and joining with us at PGAP today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It has been a pleasure. Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast, and I'm feeling very starstruck now for I am talking to the director herself of To Kid or Not To Kid, Maxine Trump. And Maxine, my first question for you is how many jokes do you get for your last name? 
Oh, you had to ask, didn't you? <laughs> we had to get it out of the way. People will be thinking. <laughs> Listen, you know, it's it's interesting because in the same way I made this film, I had to do something about my last name. So I made a short film about it. And I tried to get as many people in New York together that wasn't voting for Trump with the last name of Trump. And I made a short film called Trumps Against Trump because I couldn't. I couldn't live with this name and not do what I do best and make a documentary about it. The problem is a solution, as they say in permaculture. But more importantly still, um, you've made an amazing documentary um, in which you go right to your inner core about making the decision of whether or not to have children and since COVID and um, since all these things, are you really um, <laughs> relieved that you never went with a <laughs> decision to have children now? Or? Oh, gosh. I mean, I love how you started that question with you go right to your inner core, because as you know, Michael, haven't seen the film. I started the film with kind of showing my stomach. It's an intimate film and we go really deep and we ask a lot of the questions that society doesn't allow us to ask about this and, and talk about how hard parenting is. Because what's been so delightful for me after making this film and going around, you know, I wish I could be there in Australia screening. And, and before the pandemic hit and we were talking about these screenings, Michael, I was like, oh, I could, you know, I spent a bit of time in Australia. Maybe I can come over for it. Um, but it was, it's been a hard journey when um, I've been at screenings and listened to parents opening up their hearts to me about how difficult it's been for them. And that was like a real surprise for me. I didn't expect parents to say, I hardly ever am able to talk about how hard it's been. My journey to have kids, my journey to then bring up kids and and maybe I'd have done it differently. And uh, that's been, I've kind of felt honored to be a sort of a vessel that can hold these kind of almost secrets from these families. Um, and that's been amazing. And then, you know, talking about what you're saying, have I been relieved? Oh my goodness, so relieved. And I see my neighbors and I sort of say to my neighbors, listen, you know, we're masked up. And I say, you know, if you need me to take your child for a walk to the park, you know, we're neighbors, we've, we're in a bubble, we're all wearing masks. Um, because they're just, you know, they're just balancing so much and it was hard before a pandemic let alone you know you have a woman that's in full-time job if they're in heterosexual partner you know who is the person that's teaching the kids at home when they're trying to hold down a full-time job and usually it's unfortunately lying at the at the feet of the women to do most of the work yeah yeah it was interesting in the movie how um my impression is that you were weighing up the pros and cons um, to, to have a child or not it was a very difficult decision for you. Um, looking at it retrospectively, it because you seem to have been since so involved in the child-free and, and, and dare, dare I say the broader population movement, um, that looking back, does it have seemed like the best decision you've ever made? I mean, there's obviously a reason why you're so involved in this movement. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's really interesting is do you think you you were watching the film, Michael, and you felt it was a hard decision for me. The hard decision was actually the community accepting my decision. 
because I think I always knew it was just being able to come out about the fact I didn't want children. And I was able to do this through making a film. And my heart is for people that have so much pressure, parental, society, community, workplace pressure, where people are constantly told, you you know, the next step in life, if you're you know, if you've married, is either, you know, have a child, whether um, you're heterosexual, give birth naturally, or, you know, adopt or what have you. Um, and I, I actually didn't want children. And it took, like I've said, it's, it's taken this film to be able to be loud and proud about it, because I am so proud about it, because this was one decision I've made that's allowed me to be really happy. And I didn't need to leave a legacy on this planet of more children because no one needed my children. This planet doesn't need my children. And it didn't need me to bring them into the world when I didn't really want them. Which leads me to, to an interesting question. Um, well, interesting from my perspective anyway. <laughs> I'm sure it's interesting. <laughs> I'm sure it's fascinating. Um, was there um, a kind of a movement of, of your involvement in this being around a personal decision and through making the film, um, has it kind of led you, I'm not sure, <laughs> maybe a little bit kicking and screaming into the broader um, population movement? Because um, as we all know, that the population debate is, uh, it's been described in the past as a poison chalice and it, it, it involves, um, you know, difficult conversations about fertility in the developed world versus, you know, fertility in the global south and immigration and personal choice. So have you found yourself um, <laughs> lumped with other people or <laughs> suddenly feeling you're biting off more than you can chew or, or, or how's it evolved? Gosh, that is fascinating. Um, but I don't know whether you remember, but right at the end of the film, my sister had uh, this amazing poster on her wall as a teenager. And she even says, like, she moved the David Bowie poster to put this poster of overpopulation. And it was it's an incredible piece of artwork. And it really had an effect on me from a very young age. And it always has, has stayed with me. And, you know, my last film was about cutting down amazing forests in Tongas and in the Tongas forest in Alaska. So obviously I have a heart for eco stories. And if scientists are saying the best thing we can do for this planet is have less children, then I shouldn't be bringing my children to this earth. And actually I think I'm doing a really good job by not doing that. So that's a fundamental belief I have. So I don't feel I've been I actually feel a natural allegiance to population groups and there are many brilliant groups. You know, it's wonderful to know about your group, Michael, and we've been talking a long time about doing this screening together. So I'm so excited that um, Australia has done so well with the pandemic that we can actually screen the film there in a theatre, which is really exciting um, before we um, put To Kid or Not To Kid on Amazon Prime. And you know, we managed to screen it in America, we managed in theatres in America, which is amazing. But one thing that we tend to forget in all of this is we can talk about Global South, we can talk about the, the Global South and the amount of children that they're having, but we need to talk about the Western um, amount of children that we're having in the West, because we 
our consume, as you know, Michael, you can spell all the facts off, but we consume so much more than anyone else around the world. So we should be making these decisions and not saying, oh, you know what? Those people in the global South, they really shouldn't have children. We need to wake up and smell the coffee and take responsibility ourselves. There's also the argument that I make that, um, you know, we're already overpopulated in many of the developing countries. I mean, if you look at the Netherlands, there are so many people in the Netherlands that they had to reclaim the sea just to stop people falling off into the water. So, um, And, you know, Japan, and they're going, oh, their population is declining. And, you know, 120 million people on an archipelago that's mostly mountainous and and they don't they don't you know in all of this uh all of these articles these clickbait articles saying you know what are these societies going to do they're not talking about let's think about how we're going to feed all the people that are already there who's going to have the jobs when most you know so many of our jobs are, are going to be automatic um robots going to be doing so many more jobs in our future and that's on my heart like my nieces and nephews, I really hope they'll be employed for the rest of their lives and not struggle with unemployment. And at the moment, let's think, let's talk about unemployment and those kinds of issues and the resources and how we actually can feed everybody that already exists in the world. So your movie has received praise from the US press, from the LA Thank Times, you for the New York Times, <laughs> um, lots of other places. It, 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 it sounded like you were showered with compliments. Um, oh, <laughs> has, that it's, been, it's, has that been the experience or has anyone called you selfish? Or <laughs> you know, um, I was really aware that there could be a lot of trolling after the movie came out and I, friends were saying to me, listen, we've got your back, don't worry, you know, we know that you're going to hit hard, you're going to be hit hard and, and actually it's been kind of incredible and I remember somebody saying to me once, you know, as soon as you talk about not having kids, you're going to be really surprised about the amount of people that are going to respond positively. We just need to talk about it. And then you're going to find other people that also feel the same as you or get it. Like so many parents actually get it. Um, and they're sort of like, yeah, you're you're not having kids. So, you know, I, I can kind of have kids. <laughs> you know? So that's been, it's been really lovely. The response to the film has been um, fantastic. And I think the really hard decision for me when I was making the film was to make it so personal you know we go places that I really I'm not ever going to go again in a film <laughs> you know my husband was incredible um he allowed the camera to be in places that you know um wouldn't ordinarily be so you know I'm, I'm really excited for the Australian audience because you have a really really big um child-free community actually in Australia and we've had tons of people on our social media say, when is it coming out in Australia? When is it coming out in Australia? So I'm excited um, that To Kid or Not To Kid will be playing in Melbourne and Perth with your organisation. I mean, you you bought the film here to be in theatres, Michael, and I can't thank uh, Sustainable Population um, enough for doing that. What is the most rewarding thing and the most annoying thing about making a movie? Oh, wow, you're going deep. Um, <laughs> and you thought making a movie was personal. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the most difficult part of making the movie? I mean, it's always fundraising. It's always recognizing that people want this film. This was the first film, um, English language film, 
that would play in theatres that would ever talk about that was ever going to talk about this subject. And it was hard. You know, you talk about how difficult it is to get people to talk about overpopulation. It was really hard to raise money for a film that's talking about not having children because it's never been done before. So that was really, really tough. And we're still, um, you know, through screening fees, through we're managing to just about now be covering our budget, which is really exciting. But that's really hard. And you have to continually believe in your project, um, that you know you're making a difference. And, and because organizations have been have come around me and supported me, it's really allowed me to know that this film was needed and the audience response you know we're continually hearing from the audience saying thank you so much this film has changed my life I feel like I'm not alone I can show this to my family now and they'll understand who I am and that just makes it all worthwhile I feel like you're shining the light on the shadows you know it's something that mm. everyone thinks like should I be having children should I not and um, if people don't talk about it then it becomes a shadow, becomes warped, and then people project onto others, which I think, you know, which is a lot of the flack that people have been getting. And, isn't it, and also, isn't it weird that we're at this time, you know, we're in 2021, and you still don't talk about the decision to not have children, which just seems crazy to me, because we should be, you know, when are these conversations, you know, are people just assuming if you're in a relationship that you're going to have kids? That That's no assumption anymore, especially, you know, the things that women have really fought for, like don't assume um, that that's what we want. It, exactly. And um, have that actual conversation of the pros and cons, because I know no one who's had children and then turned around and said, um, you know, it was a lot easier than I was expecting it to be. You know, people <laughs> look so, so exhausted. True. So, you know, you think you're talking about the child free community in Australia. Um, I think <laughs> I've been so cynical here. One of the big reasons is we can't afford houses anymore. Like, right. uh, we've got such a housing Ponzi scheme in Australia. So, um, mm. you know, any anyone below the age of 40, um, I'm thinking about having children. Uh, <laughs> the only yeah. place they can afford now is right in the red heart of Australia. So, mm. um, I mean, or, and I think that's true, you know, in so many places in, you know, in the urban areas of, of America and, and, you know, talk about the UK, you know, um, Australian cousins, you know, we, we, I mean, the UK house prices are crazy and it's a real, it comes up all the time in surveys with young people of like, I don't think I can have, a, I don't think I can afford to have a child. And I'm, and hats off to them. Cause I'm like, you are really thinking like when I was a kid, I wasn't financially as sensible. Um, so I'm really, I'm really impressed. Like young people in, you know, they get a hard time and they're thinking they have to constantly think of job prospects and they thinking of like, can they afford a house? What can they do? I'm I'm impressed by them. To be to be honest with you, I know um, we had a leading uh, demographer in Australia saying all young people need to do is have less smashed avocados. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's the reason people are not having too many brunches. Too many brunches. <laughs> Child avocado. <laughs> <laughs> I think an avocado is better for my health, personally. Yeah, totally. Looking after a kid in um, <laughs> much these, less stressful and tastier. So, look, Maxine, thank you so much for your 
time. Um, Maxine Trump's film To Kid or Not to Kid will be screening in Melbourne on February the 26th um, and in Perth on February the 27th. Um, I'll provide links in the podcast links. Um, this has been a year, I think, in the making. <laughs> we of of have, us screening with you, right? Yeah. Uh, I know. Thank you so much for your persistence. Uh, COVID saw an end to the first two screenings and we're really crossing our fingers here. I mean, Australia's doing well, um, but, you know, the hotel security is still giving us constant little surprises um and there's a tennis open in melbourne at the moment so you know crossing everything <laughs> um well and those that will be listening that are outside melbourne and perth because you have a big country over there um having traveled there extensively it will be on amazon prime on the 27th as well so if you do miss um miss it in melbourne or perth you can access it and and I really do have to say, you know, thank you again, Michael, because we've been talking about this for a long time and, and the work that you do is incredibly important. So um, I'm, I'm very, very happy to be partnering with you on these screenings. And we're happy, happy to be partnering too with you because we're very borough fraud and facts-based and you really got into the emotions there. So it's like a complimentary match made in heaven. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect way to end this podcast. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Maxine. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. It really has. Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. And I am virtually sitting here with Tanya Williams, who's a chief change maker uh, and who authored A Child Free Happily Ever After and is about to release a child free magazine. How are you, Tanya? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. You're sounding very industrious later. And we thought we might interview you because um, Spa will be promoting Maxine Trump's film To Kid or Not To Kid this month. And it's a um, coincidence that you're launching a magazine this month. Uh, but my first question for you is um, Spa is launching this film as part of our um, Stop at Two campaign. Now, you stopped at zero, and I'd assume you wouldn't mind if other people stopped at zero. <laughs> So I was just wondering if you'd like to share your journey towards child-free and why child-free has been a passion or a passionate enough for you where you wrote a book about it. Yeah, sure. Look, I, um, I'm one of the people that always knew that I didn't want to have children. I was never, um, you know, maternal growing up. You know, I used to dream of career and, you know, a lot of the games that I played weren't mum and dad's. It was like me rushing off, in, you know, we'd play in a cubby house and I'd be rushing off in my in my new car and on my pretend car, obviously, and, you know, with my heels and, and, you know, so that were the sorts of fantasies I was having when I was growing up. It was never around, okay, one day I'm going to be a mother. So, I mean, I always knew, um, and of course, you know, you get the, the standard questions and when you get older, you'll understand, you'll change your mind and when you find the right person and, you know, your whole life, you hear the same um, questions and statements, you know, made to you. And certainly, you know, when I met, I got married very young. So I was 19 when I met my husband, married at uh, 23. And, you know, before we got married, you know, we had that conversation. I'd said to him, I was always quite vocal, 
you know, when we were dating about the fact that I didn't want to have children. Um, and I think a lot of people went, oh, yeah, she'll change her mind. Um, and I said to him, I'm not going to have children for you or your family or anybody else. So, um, you know, if that's something that you really want in your life, then, you know, this probably isn't going to, isn't going to work. So, you know, I know, I know myself, I know my mind, I'm not going to change my mind. And, you know, he was extremely supportive and always has been. His view was always, it's your body, it's your decision. Um, you know, I'm quite happy either way. He was never one that was always, oh my God, I have to be a father. I have to have a family. Just quietly, he loves our lifestyle. <laughs> so I don't, I think he looks at some of his mates and goes, oh man, look, I'm so happy that I don't have to be running kids to soccer practice and, and doing all these things that would cut into his time. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a an important conversation that I think everybody needs to have before they get serious in a, in a relationship because it certainly causes a lot of angst and drama and issues um, if you don't have that. So, you know, for me, it was sort of um, something that I've always been comfortable with. Other people maybe have not been as comfortable around my choice and my decision. But certainly, you know, I got the idea for the book quite a number of years ago when I was actually interviewed for a, um, a newspaper. And back then, I remember it was probably like, you know, eight years ago or so now, and I remember going, wow, this could make a really good book. You know, we need to write about this because more women are now choosing to to not have children and I sort of you know I think I wrote a couple of pages or something parked it never sort of thought of it again and it really sparked um you know I, I was just actually I saw some stuff on Facebook about parent parking and oh my god the responses were so passionate on either side from parents versus non-parents and I couldn't believe it I was like wow this is a really uh juicy conversation that's for sure and it, that's when it sort of prompted me to go you know what now is the time is right for you to write this book um so it was literally ironically nine months from idea to when the book the book was actually published so I call it my baby um and yeah and you know the rest is history but that was yeah that was three years ago now so it was it was certainly very exciting I still get you know it was still selling copies I still get great feedback about it it's something I'm really proud of and I'm so glad that I did. Fantastic. And just goes to show that uh, babies don't have to be human, do they? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's interesting hearing everyone's journey on, on what makes it um, that they want to be child-free or have small families. Um, Spa's done interviews with a bunch of people and a vast variety of opinions and environmental versus personal I think for me, I'm a really self-conscious person. And so the idea that my children would go to therapy because of me, I can't stand that thought, avoid that at all costs. So I'd like to say it was environmental reasons, but I think, <laughs> I love I it. think you know, ultimately we're all a bit selfish, aren't we? And a bit neurotic. Um, so describe the book, like what, what, like if I open to chapter three, what would I find in chapter three? If I, how long is it? Or, or <laughs> any executive summary of? I know it's three years ago. So. Yeah. Well, um, look, it's really about sharing a lot of real life stories and so forth. So I share my personal journey through it. I talk about why um, more women are having children, and we sort of dive into some stats and that sort of thing about it. Um, but I wanted to make sure that the book wasn't a mum bashing book. Um, it wasn't, you know, telling people they had to be child-free. My, um, the premise of everything that I do is around what I call the C word, 
and that's choice. So for me, I think it's very important that women and men are making choices that are right for them, not necessarily the choices that are right for their partners, their parents, their friends, or whoever else is pressuring them into making the decisions that you know they don't want necessarily want to make, but also that they have a choice. I think it, it is sort of just, you know, a lot of people don't actually stop and think about it sometimes and think, well, it's just a natural progression of that's what you do. Um, and people look back and go, oh, I never actually realized I had a choice not to have a child. Um, so they actually don't put a lot of thought um, around it as well because they just go, oh, that's just the next thing. So for me, it was really important to have a well-rounded conversation in the book. So, it, it, you know, I, I interviewed people who are child-free by choice. I interviewed people who are child-free by circumstance, so they wanted kids but couldn't have them. I've interviewed mums who are very happily, um, mu very happy mums, and I also interviewed mums who regretted their choice, who went, "I wish I had known how hard it was and what it was involved, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this again." So I wanted the conversation to be really well-rounded, um, where it showed all sides of, you know, to be child-free or not. Um, and to explain that if you do choose to be child-free, we can have this child-free happily ever after because there are a bunch of things that you know that make us fulfilled and happy that don't involve children, and that don't and that mean you know don't necessarily mean that we're going to regret our choices later in life either. So, you know, and, and I think it's done a very good job of you know sharing that and showcasing that and saying, hey, no matter what it is you choose for you, it's okay as long as it's a choice that you're making for your life. And I think that's a really important thing for anyone, no matter where they are in the world. And does the book give any advice for any child-free people who are called selfish? Because that's a bit of a catchphrase. I don't agree with the word selfish. And I just think, you know, how is it selfish to, um, to do what's right for your life? I just think, shouldn't everyone be doing the right thing for their life? And I think in particular... You know, I think that's easy for, for, for parents and other people in society to go, oh, you're just selfish for not having them. But if they actually stop and think about it, we can probably say, well, you, you guys are actually more the selfish ones because the conversation they're having is about, I want. I want a child. I want a grandchild. I want a little boy that looks like my husband. Or I want a little girl who I can dress up in cute clothes. Or it's all about what they want. Now, I would think that that is a lot more selfish than someone just going, well, I just want to live my life. Um, and just do what I what I want. So, you know, you know, we're leaving our lives as child-free people. We don't impact anybody else. So it's like, well, how does my choice impact your life? It actually doesn't in any way. So therefore, you know, you just worry about yourself. But it's yeah. It, it, even when people, you know, child people, child-free people call themselves selfish. They're like, you're not selfish. You're just living your own life the way you want to live it. I've spoken about this in in blogs and different things as well. You think about grandparents. I want a grandchild. When are you going to give me a grandchild? That is pure selfishness. You know, that is the embodiment of being selfish. So, you know, this argument about child-free people being selfish, I'm, I just don't think flies. I just think there's no validity to it at all. Yes, indeed. And, you know, when you don't have children, you can direct your life to other tasks such as activism and writing books and starting magazines and you know and life's difficult enough <laughs> without having to constantly be looking you know finding the time around soccer practice and um i'm curious your um after releasing the book have you found your discussions about um, child-free and perhaps smaller families 
starting to mix in with discussions about environment and birth strike and population and where do you see fitting into that map? into that mix it's certainly something that is is being is a much more on people's radar these days than what it used to be you know environmental issues i mean i know 20 years ago it was never raised as an issue why not to have children because i don't know whether there was just not the research around it or just wasn't a known fact i never said oh i'm not going to have kids because it's bad for the earth um and and what it's doing to the environment it's really only been in recent years where all this stuff has come out about the impact that children do have on the environment and how bad they are, and the fact that we are really overpopulated as, as you know, around, you know, as a world. So, I think certainly the conversations have changed. Certainly, since I've written my book, I've become more aware of it. You know, through the research I was doing and stuff, I was like, wow, this is a this is actually a big thing, where the younger generation coming through is now making a conscious decision purely based on impacts of the environment and look i think it's fantastic um that people are, are, are being so conscious um of the decisions that they're making and going well hey i'm not going to be one to add to that i'm gonna you know be part of a solution not part of the problem um so i certainly think the conversation around environment is a really really important one and it's definitely um made me think more and probably changed some of the conversations that i'm having and the things that i'm writing about and you know all that sort of stuff as well because it is such an important and valid um, thing that we need to discuss when it comes to being child-free. You know, every one of us can share something, we can do something, whether, you know, it's one tiny little thing and all those tiny little things add up um, to, to have some sort of an impact in the world. So I think, you know, no matter who we are, where we are, how much of a following we have or don't have, we, we can all play a part in that. I think it's really important that we do. So talking about playing a part... You're going to be launching Child Free magazine. Yeah. Um, Australian-based because you're based in Brisbane. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what what to expect in the magazine, what, it, what, what the central gist is, what the launch will involve. So, I mean, it is a global magazine, so I really want, even though I'm based here in Australia, I really wanted this to be about a global child-free community. So that's the first and foremost thing. But, you know, it's about having a focus on, you know, our child-free lifestyles, our issues, sharing real-life stories and, and giving child-free people a voice and a sense of belonging in that like, in a like-minded community. We haven't had our own media. We, we don't have our own media. If you look, you know, there's all these parenting magazines and there's, you know, most of the media that we see is very pronatalist and it's all about promoting motherhood and putting on motherhood on a pedestal and you just have to look at it pick up a magazine and there's a pregnant celebrity on there or they're talking about oh my god you know this one this person's just become a mother and it's 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 celebrated um you know in this really positive way and it's just like they don't realize that they're alienating a big chunk of their audience because you know there's close to one in four people who don't want children anymore so i you know i, I sort of sat there when all of a sudden one day i went we need our own magazine. We need something that is just for child-free people that talks to our issues, shares our stories and our challenges and is just all about us, that doesn't have any babies or kids in it or on the cover or, you know, any, any of that sort of thing. And, and that's what I've set out to achieve. So, you know, it's the, what's it, the 4th of February. Um, it launches tomorrow. So, um, you, you know, it's, you know, less than 24 hours until it, it comes out um, and it's available for sale. So, and, that, and, you know, that was the other important part of it. You know, a lot of people went, yes, we want it. And I'm like, well, that's fantastic. 
The feedback so far has been fantastic. We've got people on a wait list, which is which is awesome. But what it's gonna what you know what we need going forward is people to actually buy the magazine because all the funds for that go back into the kitty to, to create the next one. Um, being the first one, we haven't you know got global you know we've got sponsors. We haven't got advertising that that typically will pay for a magazine. Um, this has really all been funded by the child free community and myself to bring it to light. So it's you know it's about saying well if you want it, fantastic, we'll create it. But you need to support it in order for us to get another one off the ground. But it always helps when you've got one to go hey. This is what the first one was about. This is what it looks like. Um, you know, we want to create more. And, and yeah, it's been a labour of love because I don't get paid a cent. Um, it's very much a passion project. Um, hopefully we can, we can keep it moving and we can get the support behind it globally to, to make this, you know, a reality and, and get regular issues out because I just think it's something that we really need across the globe is our own magazine that's just for us. And hopefully in conjunction with the launch of uh, Maxine's film in Australia, well, the issue will be unavoidable for most Australians. So if people want to be on the waiting list to contribute, or more importantly yet, <laughs> buy the magazine, um, what can they do and where can they go? They, the, the best place to go is to um, a Child Free Happily Ever After's website. So it's just childfreehappilyeverafter.com.au. If they just click on the Child Free Magazine page, they'll see all the details and the, and the link to buy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's great. It's it's so great to see more stories and, like, you know, Maxine's film. I mean, I've, her film's great. I've seen it, um, you know, sparking these conversations and having more media and more um, stuff on our screens around this conversation is so, so important. And I think, um, you know, it's great to see films like this coming out across the globe. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to connect and and all the best for the launch. I'm really excited for you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for chatting. You are and have been listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is still definitely better than bigger. Nothing's changed. <laughs> um, so I'm going to make this outro really quick and a bit ad-lib. We had three powerhouse interviews there. Wow. Big thanks to Florence Blondell, Maxine Trump, and Tanya Williams. All amazing conversations um, from them, not necessarily by me. Um, the only things that I want to say very quickly at this point is if you're in uh, Melbourne on the 26th of February and you're not in lockdown, um, go see To Kid or Not To Kid. If you're in Perth on the 27th of February um, and Perth's not in lockdown through some hotel quarantine hoo-ha then go see two kid or not to kid and say hi to the spa members they're a lot less um, scary than you think <laughs> uh if you are around for neither or we're in all in lockdown in australia or if you're elsewhere in the world uh, to kid or not to kid is launched uh later this month um i think on the 27th so definitely see that um Follow the work of Tanya Williams, Maxine Trump and Florence Blondell. Your life will be massively enriched as a result. Leave a review 
on Apple Podcast or your favourite platform. The more reviews we get, the more it cuts through to the mainstream, um, which is really great for this discussion because by this post-growth topic cutting through the mainstream, we might have a chance of saving the planet. And I'm not saying that giving this podcast high reviews <laughs> is the only way forward, but it's one way. Um, so, look, until next time, I wish you all a good night or a good morning, depending on what time you're listening, and I bid you a good adieu.